The dodo bird is something that sounds like it's completely made up. Right? It sounds like a, a fake animal that you see in a children's cartoon or on a children's TV show. And for a long time, it was actually assumed that it was this mythological made-up creature. It was something reported to be seen off one of these smaller islands near Madagascar, and sailors had seen it, but then no one had really seen it for a while, and so they thought they were making stuff up. Until eventually, they kind of found some fossils and realized, oh no, here, yeah, the dodo bird, it really does exist, and it's kind of hard to describe. It looks like a weird mix between a pelican and a duck, a real small thing, but it, like many animals, unfortunately, has gone extinct, and we only kind of hear about it in passing or as jokes. Well, this morning, we're going to talk about something else that seems to have mostly gone extinct, and that's church discipline. Um, church discipline is not a popular topic. It's not something that we really practice very much anywhere as the American church. Um, in fact, and I don't do this very often, but I'm curious, raise your hand if you have ever heard a sermon where the, the topic was on church discipline. Okay, I've got a few hands. Well, for the many of you who have not, I have great news. You are about to hear the best sermon on church discipline that you have ever heard before. So that's good. For the others of you, I'm, you know, I'm sorry. But so as it comes to church discipline, this leads to a, a, lot, of, a lot of questions. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going we're to try and answer some of these that you may have. Um, we're going to ask, we're going to define church discipline. What is it? We're going to talk about why would we do this? We're going to talk about how do we do this? Who do we do this to? When does this happen? What is the point of this? Um, so those are a lot of the questions that we're going to answer. That's why you're going to see there's a number of points um, in your handout. But now I'm going to invite Sue um, to come up and to read our passage for us in 1 Corinthians um, 5. So if you just follow along in your Bibles. It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. And you have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, in order that the one who has done this deed might be removed from your midst. For I, on my part, though absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged him who has committed this as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. Clean out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, has also been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the feast, not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters, 
for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother, if he should be an immoral person, or covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For, I ha for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Bow with me. Father God, I pray you would give us ears to hear the words you have given David to share with us today, Father. Help us to know, Lord, as the Bible says, that the Lord reproves those he loves. Be with us today, God. Give us an ear to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Man, thank you, Sue. And so you see, I didn't decide to preach on this just because I thought it would be fun. That's where we're at in the letter and what Paul needed to talk about. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning. So first, it'd be helpful to define what in the world do I mean when I say church discipline. And so I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but I want to actually define it so you know what I'm saying so that we can kind of be on the same page for at least a little bit. And so your first point is that church discipline is the process of correcting sin in the life of the church and its members. Church discipline is the process of correcting sin in the life of the church and its members. And unpack this just a little bit. What I mean by process is it can be informal, it can be formal. There's some place throughout most of church history, this was a formal process. They would have church courts, they would have lists, and everyone would know and sign covenants and say, okay, you do these things, then here's what's going to happen. You don't repent, then here's what's going to happen. You're going to go before the court, we're going to have evidence, we're going to do these things, right? So often it's that, but it also can be informal. Paul isn't necessarily telling them to do that, though that wouldn't be a violation of what he's asking, but he is telling them to do something, right? So it's whatever this process is for dealing with the sin inside the church. What I mean by members isn't just somebody who's signed a piece of paper, right? Our membership is a little more informal than others. But what I mean is just somebody who's a part of the church family, somebody who's inside the walls. It's not just someone who came in one Sunday and they've never been here before, and now you're deciding to do this. Um, and, and yeah, then they might not ever leave, or they might leave immediately after that. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. But, and then what we see here Paul do in explaining this, the most extreme step in this discipline is excommunication. It's kicking them out of the body. It is turning them away and sending them out. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Um, so the first question you may have is, who in the world, why do you think you can do this? Under what authority do you think that the church could kick somebody out of its walls and send them away? Because that sounds pretty... Un-American, sounds pretty, we don't like that, that offends our individualistic spirit, right? We always want to know, well, what, what about my rights? How come, you, why do you think you can do this? Well, Paul says, we have here for point number two, is that we practice church discipline under the authority of Jesus to protect the church. So we practice church discipline under the authority of Jesus to protect the church. And first we see that Paul does this as he's giving them the instruction. He is telling them, here's what you guys need to do because you aren't doing this. And they go, oh, why should I do this? And you say, well, look, guys, I'm the Apostle Paul, okay? The apostles are unique individuals chosen by Jesus himself 
to be in charge of His church, to build His church, to, to found it, to lead it, to guide us, because they were people who knew Jesus the best, and the people Jesus put in charge. The apostles are the main ones who wrote much of the New Testament. And Paul says, he lays this out in verse 3, where he's saying, Though I am absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. He's saying, I am using my authority as an apostle to issue my judgment. And because I'm the apostle, I'm doing it even though I'm not there. I'm, I'm there in spirit, and so you need to do this in the authority of, that has been given to me and to the church. And for when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, so when you're assembled, the next time you gather together, physically, you're all in one place, you need to do this, not just in my name, but in the name, verse 4, of the Lord Jesus, and with my spirit present, with the power of the Lord Jesus. You don't just do this because it sounds fun. We do this because Jesus has told us to do this. We do this because Jesus has commanded us to do this. And so we, as a church, we as Christians, why in the world should we do this? What gives a church the right to think they could do something like this? Well, the Bible's telling us to do it. That's what Paul is doing in this whole chapter is he is saying, hey, y'all are not practicing church discipline, and you should be. And later he said, this is a shame. This is horrible. This is bad that y'all aren't doing this. You should be. So if it's true for them, it's also true for us. This is the principles that we have to take out of this passage. Now, we don't do this just because we're, we're power hungry, right? We don't do this just because we want to have authority over people's lives, because I want to get in and micromanage and have you come up so I can embarrass you in front of everyone and list out your sins. That, that would be a violation of what Paul's asking us to do. That's the wrong reason to be practicing this. We do this just because we're trying to do what Jesus asked us to do. And there's a lot of things that Jesus, there's a lot of things the Bible asks us to do that we don't like. There's plenty of things we do like, but there are some things that Jesus asks us to do that make us uncomfortable. There are things that Jesus says that really offend the world, that really make people angry when they hear it. They go, how in the world could you even like a book that would say such a hateful thing? And there's also things for us we read and go, Church discipline, this sounds, I don't like this. I don't like this idea of kicking people out, turning them over to Satan. That sounds pretty serious, Paul. You know, I want to use a different word. Let's use some different language. But the Bible's telling us that we have to do this. It says that he's given the church the authority to do this, so we need to do this. Another part of, well, why would we do this? Well, it's because it protects the church's holiness. It's to protect the church. It's for the good of the church. It's not just so that we can feel better about ourselves and how awesome we are and how terrible somebody else is. This discussion in verse 6 through 8, Paul goes on to this kind of long thing talking about leaven. And that's probably not a word many of us use very often, I guess, unless you're a baker and you're really into making bread, um, then maybe you're a little unfamiliar with it. But the Christians would understand this, especially the Jewish believers, because he's referencing Passover here. Okay, at Passover time, one of the things they would have to do is they would spend several days getting all of the leaven out of their camp. Okay, all of the yeast, all of the stuff that makes the bread rise, all of their sourdough, all of that, they have to get it out, destroy all of it. And why? Well, okay, if you put a little bit of yeast in some dough, and you mash it up and mix it around, okay, you can't take it out. And there's no way to get that out of there. You can't just, you know, cut it, oh, there's the yeast, I see it. it it's infected the whole thing. 
And that's often throughout Scripture what leaven is used to show is it is a symbolic for sin and how sin infects us. How so, once sin gets in, it, it can't get out. And once sin gets into the community, once it gets into the assembly of God's people, once it gets into the church, unless you deal with it, it is going to slowly infect everyone else. And that's why he says, don't you know, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. It spreads everywhere. So cleanse it out. Throw it away. Because you're supposed to be unleavened. You're not supposed to be leavened. There shouldn't be sin among you that ruins this. And at Passover, which it references and says, For Christ is our Passover lamb. Let us therefore celebrate the festival. What's the festival? The festival of unleavened bread. The festival of Passover. Where they get rid of all of the leaven in the whole camp. No one can have any. And if they find somebody who has lemon, what do they have to do? It seems extreme. They have to kick him out of the people. They exile him from the community. Well, you go, that's weird, just for having some bread. Well, because it's symbolic of having sin in their midst. And so this is part of why we have to do this. This is part of why Paul and God tells us to practice church discipline is to protect the church. And it's also to protect the witness of the church. Because what, is it, what does it say to the church? What does it say to the world and to the city of Corinth if there is somebody in their church who seems to be a prominent leader who is living or sleeping with his mother-in-law. That is bad. Okay, that's not going to make people think this is a good holy place with people who really love Jesus. I mean, think, oh, that's what Jesus is about. Yeah, sign me up for that. Okay. This is a horrible witness. And this is really damages Christ. You can think of lots of scandals in church throughout, not just church history, just look at a newspaper over the past year. I'm sure you can find plenty of churches. Were pastors having affairs, pastors being predators, pastors embezzling, leaders doing all sorts of sin? What does that do when the church sees that? Or when the world sees that about the church? They go, oh, I don't need Jesus. Clearly, that's all made up. It's hypocrisy. And look, they don't even care. They're turning, the, they're turning their eyes. They're not even, it doesn't even bother them. So this is part of why we have to do this, is to protect the witness of the church. Number three, we then ask, okay, well, how should we do this? Or really, what should be our attitude about this? And this is where I want to start, uh, or I want to park here for a moment, because we have to keep this in the back of our mind as we have this whole discussion, is that we should approach church discipline with mourning instead of pride. We have to approach this discussion, we have to approach this topic of church discipline with mourning, not pride. This should make us weep. Not just reading this, but whenever we have to do this. Whenever the church throughout history has had to kick somebody out, it should not lead to pride. It should lead to us crying. And it uses this word mourning specifically in two. Are you not arrogant? Aren't you? You guys should be mourning. Why should, he's not saying you guys should be bummed. Should be a little sad. Should scratch your heads and think, oh, that's too bad. Saying, no, you should be weeping, mourning throughout the Bible. They would tear their clothes. They would dump ash on their heads. You should be acting as if somebody has died, as if something horrific has happened that causes you to just dry heave sobs and snot pouring down your face. That should be how you respond when people sin in the church. Why? Well, and especially if we really understand the gospel, it should lead us to weeping because we understand the seriousness of sin. Sin isn't just a small thing. It isn't just a mistake. It isn't just, oh, you know, we're, we're all human. We, we all sin. We all messed up. 
We really understand the gospel of Jesus. We understand that every sin, there's no ranking, big and small, all of it is offensive to the holy God of the universe, and all of it leads us in trouble. And that's a vast understatement. It leads us in danger of hell and separation from God forever. That's what sin is. So we see someone sinning, that should lead us to weeping because we know what's coming. And it should lead us to weeping because we know the reason that that's not us isn't because we're so incredible and so amazing, but it's because of God's grace that He saved us, that He's delivered us. And church discipline, this goes wrong when it leads to pride. This goes way off in places where people think that they are so much better than someone else. I can't believe they would do that. Let's kick them out. And okay, good. We're, we're good now. Man, aren't we glad we're not as bad as that person? No, 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 no. We should lead to deep mourning whenever this has to happen. Paul was not happy that he had to do this. I, I can only imagine that he wasn't excited when he had to, got to this part of his letter to Corinth. Our response should be mourning. I can think of... Uh, an example from my own life, I was interning at a, at a big church with some other seminary students, most of us the first year in seminary, um, and one of the other guys had come, he was feeling guilty, he hadn't gotten caught, no one knew, and he came up and he just confessed to his mentor superior that he had been kind of struggling with pornography recently. And he, he didn't get caught, no one found out about it, but he was convicted that this was wrong, this was, this was, he needed to deal with this, and so he came and confessed. And the response was to practice church discipline, okay, fire him, and then kick him out, and excommunicate him, and then be done. Which, okay, I, you know, I'm not saying he shouldn't have been fired, because there should be a higher standard for people who are meaning to be pastors and trying to be in ministry, of course. But this was the interesting thing about the attitude. Behind closed doors when that was done, then sitting with some of those same pastors, the way they then talked about him was one of a lot of pride. It was, ah, oh, man, what an idiot. I can't believe he would do that. Man, we can't have people like that. Or so glad he's gone. Man, that's not the right attitude. It's not even about, well, should he or shouldn't have been fired. It should be. Whatever we do when we come to church discipline, it should make us weep. It should make us sad that somebody is continuing an unrepentant sin and doesn't want to turn to Jesus. That shouldn't make us happy. It should make us cry over and over. Our response to sin and our response to church discipline especially should always be one of mourning. This should be our attitude as we enter into it. So keep that in mind. Sin leads us to, to ask, well, who? So who do we do this to? Or when should we do this? Or not when, but who should we do this? And so we do this, point number four, is we discipline members of our local church. Or we discipline those inside the church, not outside the church. Sorry, we discipline those inside the walls of the church, not outside. You look at kind of 9 through 12, Paul talks about this. Well, we can think of, first maybe we can think of some bad examples. Um, no, I'm getting ahead of myself, I'm sorry. No, so we're only called to do this to people who are in the church, not outside. So you see this in 9, he's saying, I'm telling you, I wrote to you in my letter, do not associate with sexually immoral people. And a part of that, that's tying in back to number two, where you need to be removing this person from among you. This person who is practicing this sin, you need to kick them out. And then you need to have nothing more to do with them. Do not associate with these people. But he has to clarify in 10. There's you know, the little dash. He's like, okay, just, just in case you get my message wrong, I don't at all mean all of the sexual immoral people of the world or the greedy, the swindlers, the idolaters, because you need to go out into the world. 
said, okay, if you don't associate with anybody who's a sinner, you're not going to be talking to anybody. Okay, you got to go out, you got to have jobs, you got to work, you got your mat. some of you are slaves, you have your masters you have to work for, some of you, you know, you're, you're carpenters, you got all these things, you got to buy groceries. Okay, you got to talk to people who are sinners. So I'm not saying don't do that, but I am saying in 11, I am writing you not to associate, and that word associate is it's talking about close friendship. It's a deep fellowship. It's not just that they're, you're good buddies with them, but it's you're, you're doing life with them alongside. And I'm telling you, do not do this with anyone who bears the name of a brother or sister if he's guilty of sexual immorality, greed, idolatry, reviling, drunkenness, swindling. Don't even eat with such a one. And in case you missed it, he says, 12, what do, what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Okay, God's going to take care of all those sinners outside the church. You don't bring them before church discipline. That'd be kind of weird, wouldn't it? If we decided we were going to do this, and I said, you know what? There was someone who was a real big jerk to me at Walmart, and so we're going we're to send them a letter. We're going to bring them in here this morning so we can practice church discipline on them because that was sinful. Well, what? Who do you think you are? What gives you the right to do that? Well, none. That's what Paul is saying. You, you don't have any right to do that. Don't do that. Why would you do that? Don't worry about the people outside there. Worry about the people inside your walls. Worry about the people in here who have sin that need to be dealt with, that need to be confronted. We're not meant to be the morality police for the world. Now, be careful. What I mean by that is not that we don't talk about what isn't sinful. That's not what Paul is saying. He's talking specifically about church discipline. So we do preach against sin. We're not as scared to say, hey, world, just so you know, this is what God says about truth. This is what God says morality is. And all of you are sexually immoral, greedy, idolaters, revilers, drunkards, swindlers. That's, that's what you all are. But we're not going to practice church discipline on you because that's not our role. What we will do is we will do with that those who are members of the church. But often we're a lot more comfortable confronting unbelievers sin than believers, aren't we? It's a lot easier to be judging people who don't know Jesus than it is to judge those inside the walls of the church. And we tend to do this a lot, really. I mean, we, we get offended and cannot believe that unbelievers would have the gall, the nerve to act like people who don't know Jesus. I mean, I can't believe they would do that. Don't they know Jesus? No, they don't know Jesus. That's, kind of, that's why they act that way. What Paul is telling us is, no, you need to do this, the, the specific practice of church discipline. This is with people inside the church, those people that you know who bear the names of brothers. Uh, I think of this since, you know, we, we bought a new house recently. You know, we're, we're getting into it. It's been a couple months now. Uh, but what I noticed when we went and visited houses, because you go and you tour a bunch of these things, and you look at it, and, you know, you compare and look at everything. It's kind of a whirlwind. But one thing, when you go into a new house, especially if you're in a buy, you start noticing everything wrong with it. Right, you know, all the dirt, you know, some paint chipping, you know, hey, this door is kind of crooked. Wow, look at that crack. Every single thing that's wrong, you find it, you know. And Bria's way better about this than I was. She could spot them all out, and we could. But I found after doing that a couple of times, we go, man, these houses are dirty. They have all this stuff. I can't believe it. Then we go, you know, back to our house. We're now in our new house that I remember doing a lot of that stuff. Some of those things that bothered me before don't really bother me anymore. Okay, there's still a lot of stains on the floors because it's old wood. There's still some paint that's not really quite done right, but it's mine. Okay, so now it doesn't bother me anymore. When it was someone else's, it bothered me a lot. And we have the same thing about our own houses, right? We can go visit someone else's house and be like, oh, I can't believe they, why do they have it decorated that way. 
Why do they have that there? Wow, that's kind of a mess. Ooh, this color's horrible. Then we go back to our house, and there's weird things about our houses. There's that mess in the corner. There's that drawer that's filled with all sorts of junk that we don't open anymore. And we're fine with it, right? Because it's ours. Well, that's what Paul is telling us. We have to avoid that. We can't just go judging those outside the church. We have to start inside the church. Especially because if we're not doing it here, what in the world gives you the idea that you think the world's going to listen to you? If, your old, if our own house is a mess, if our church is a massive mess, if we're wrapped up in all sorts of other scandals, then how, what gives us the authority to speak to the scandals of the world? So we are only called to do this, those inside the church. The reality is we love judging and preaching against the world. We don't, we don't love it as much against our own sin. We really don't. It'd be really easy for me to come up every week and just rail on the world. Right? Just pull up a newspaper and let's just go through and let me just preach against all the sin that we're seeing out there. And we don't like that. That'd feel good. They'd even feel like, yeah, man, he's really, really preaching, preaching hard. Well, but the thing is, none of us are really convicted because it's not us. It's much harder not just to preach, but to then speak and to be confronted about our own sin, our own idols that sometimes are more subtle or insidious. But this is, this is important for us to remember that who do we do this to? We don't just do this to anybody we desire. That church discipline has to happen inside of the church, not outside. Which I don't know how much clearer Paul can make it. <laughs> He's saying, what do I have to do with judging outsiders? It's not those, in, is not those inside the church whom you are to judge. God judges the outside. God will take care of that. You need to take care of this. This is the stuff that is under our authority as a church. So those inside these walls, not just those inside these walls, but those who want to be a part of our, fam- our church family, who are a part of our family. Those are the people we have a responsibility to care for because we're family. It's not just some other Christian somewhere else at some other church. That's their responsibility. We have to worry about ourselves first. Again, this doesn't mean we don't talk about sin. It doesn't mean we don't even tell the world that they are sinning. But we should do a lot more of that inside here than we do outside there. And so that's who. Next question is, well, when should we do this? Okay, this seems kind of extreme. This is kind of a big thing, especially kicking somebody out. But so when would this happen? Well, church discipline must occur when there is serious, unrepentant, public sin. Church discipline must occur when there is serious, unrepentant, public sin. When I told my dad and some others that I was preaching on church discipline this week, they said, oh no, what happened? Because the assumption is that, well, it has to be something serious and something awful and something probably everybody knows about, and so now we have to talk about something, which is good. That's kind of a right understanding, but I'm happy that's not what we're doing this morning. It's a little easier to preach it um, before that. But this is kind of a guideline. It needs to be serious, has to be unrepented, and it really should be public. Some bad examples of church discipline. These are some recent ones and some um, from church history. There's one denomination I've heard of where there's some pastors who talked and said that, you know, if a wife is not doing the dishes, husband comes home and his wife hasn't done the dishes and he tells her she should have done it and then comes home again, it's not done. He needs to bring her before the elders and we need to get this process of church discipline started. Okay, yeah, that's, that's close to demonic and awful and definitely does not rise to the level of church discipline. If it did, Bree would be bringing me before you all for church discipline because um, they're often, I don't always do them when I'm supposed to. 
So from church history, there was a man named Johnson in the 1600s in Holland who, because again, church history, this is an interesting thing, we did this a lot more. This also meant we did it wrong a lot more too. But So this church that was doing it, this man had a, a wife who liked to buy expensive things and liked to dress real nice, and she dressed immodestly. I don't know what that means in the 1600s, okay? So whatever it meant to be immodest then probably is very modest today. So his wife was that, and his brother said something to him about it and kind of rebuked his I don't think your wife should be doing that. So he brought his brother before the church and kicked him out of the church for criticizing his wife because he was the pastor. Then his father came and was like, hey, that's, that's not cool. Like, you, you need to reconcile this with your brother. This, is, this isn't a good thing. And then he kicked his father out of the church and excommunicated him. Okay, this is a real thing. You can look it up if you want more of the details. It's a bad example. There's another one. There was a bunch in Georgia I read of, 1889, Salem Baptist Church in Sylvester County. Johnson Gay and Sister Rilly Monet were accused and brought before the church for dancing. They had the nerve to dance publicly, so they had to bring, bring them up to the church. You've got to use your discipline. Okay, those are some bad examples of church discipline, right? Because none of those are really serious. Not even all of those are unrepentant. I mean, you can debate how public dancing is, but it's not serious. It's at least public. So those are bad examples. So when should this happen? Well, a really good marker is kind of one Paul gives. When the sin is even worse than what's happening in the world, that is when we got to do something. She's saying, there is a kind reported among you. There is sexual immorality, verse 1, and a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. He's using that word pagan particularly to drive home how awful this is. He's saying, hey, Corinth, the Vegas of the world, place has more prostitutes per capita than anywhere else, place with all sorts of sexual immorality and everything goes, do whatever you want, that place, they are saying, whoa, guys, that's too far. We're, we're, we're not down with that. Okay, when you are more sinful than that, that is definitely a time for church discipline. When things are that bad, you can think of when there's sin that even the world goes, hey, that's not right that, you know, a pastor would be having that much money and asking for more money and then getting a jet plane. The world's saying, hey, that's not right. Well, maybe we should be saying that's not right and should do something. You can think of people having affairs. You can think of, um, like we talked about last week with, with Robbie, with those who are, are predators, with those who do that kind of, who abuse children. And then the world says, hey, that's, we're, we're not cool with that. That's objectively a bad thing. Well, if that happens in our walls, we should do something about it. And that's what he's angry and saying, y'all aren't doing something. Even the pagans would do something about this, and y'all do not care at all. We also should be doing this too when the sin publicly compromises the witness of the church, like those things do. No one would want to come to church if they knew this kind of thing was happening and we were, we were fine with this. It hurts the witness of the church. But the reality is that often we can let public sins slide if they're powerful. This is part of what's in between the lines going on here, even in their arrogance in two, is their arrogance isn't that this is happening. Their arrogance is because this somebody is kind of a bigwig. You know, because why would you let this happen? Well, you're not going to let this happen if this is somebody nobody likes, right? But somebody who's annoying, somebody who's already causing problems anyway, and it's easy to just kick this person out for this sin. Well, what if the person helped found the church? What if the person's got a lot of, has got some big pockets, they're a big donor? Or what if they're really important, they're significant, they got a big name, which is all the Corinthians care about in the town? 
And that's their arrogance. They're just happy this person's here. You know, we're, just, we're going to look over this sin. You know, it's, it's okay. It's not that big of a deal. Paul saying, no, you cannot, cannot do this. Another marker is when, it, and it's public, right? It needs to be something that like the world can see or that people can see, not just like you heard a rumor that or you saw somebody do something like it's not really that bad. It needs to be something that really is serious enough that everybody knows about it. If everyone at our church is whispering about somebody doing something sinful, well, then maybe that's the time someone should talk to them, right? Maybe we shouldn't be whispering about it. Think of an example. I mentioned this a few times, but there was someone who was leading worship um, at a church I grew up in that everyone knew was having an affair. Okay, that's a public sin. Everyone knows it's sinful. No one would say, yes, affairs are good and godly, but then what do we do? If it's that public, then church discipline needs to take place. Something has to be done. But the key thing, one of the most important markers of this is that it needs to be somebody who is unrepentant. Because really, none of this is even about the seriousness of the sin as much as it is the response of the sinner. Because if you look, this person, they're arrogant, they're not doing anything about it. And what's happening in 13, there's actually a quote here at the end. Where, where it says, God judges those outside and purge the evil person among you. You need to kick this person out. This is a reference to 17, Deuteronomy 17, 13. And it comes not long actually after talking about Passover, but if you go and look at that passage, it talks not about church discipline, but about discipline among God's people in Israel. And God lays out to Moses, okay, here's how this happens. If there are sins, if, there, if there's these public things that have happened and someone's been violating the law, bring them before the priests. Bring them before the leaders. Confront them, talk to them about it, and then tell them, hey, give them whatever the instructions they have to do to make this right. And then 13 says, well, if they're unrepentant, if they're not going to listen to the leaders and do whatever they want, then you need to purge and remove this evil person among you. It's not even about how serious the sin is as much as is this somebody who is not falling on their face and saying, wow, I did this and it is so wrong. Because that is the main marker. That we that repentance needs to come. It's cruel. That's not what he's saying is just kick somebody out if they have really bad sexual sin. Which is also, I think, why he includes swindling, idolatry, reviling, which is somebody who's really being a jerk who's always talking down and yelling and talking bad about people. I'm sure we can't think of anyone like that. Drunkard, somebody who's an addict, who's addicted to something. Swindlers, those who are cheating and the greedy. That's why you include some of these other things. It's not about how serious we think the sin is as much as it's somebody who, even when they're confronted, they just say, no, I don't care, I'm doing this anyway. That is when this has to take place. It has to be unrepentant. Because if they're repenting, then it's good. It's working. And this is where we come to, this ties into our last point in 6 and the goal. Really, the goal of church discipline and the reason we do this, we practice church discipline hoping for repentance. We hope for repentance. All of this, this whole thing, this whole process isn't just about kicking people out so we can be awesome, so we can be better. It is about hoping and weeping and praying and longing that those people would come back to Jesus, that they would fall on their faces, that they would repent of their sin, that they wouldn't continue to walk and to live in this way. 
You see this in verse 5, even though it's serious, it says, You're delivered this, person, this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. So what in the world does that mean? There, there's a lot there. I don't have time to unpack all of it. But the point of it is, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Why would we take such an extreme step of excommuting somebody from our body? It's because we're longing and hoping and praying that they'd come back and be welcomed back into us. It's not because we don't care about them that we want them gone. It's because we care so deeply about them we have to do something. This is an extreme church intervention in sin. And this should be our hope. This is why we weep. This is what should undergird all of this is a longing and a hope that these people would turn and come back to Jesus. And this discussion on, you know, you're to deliver this man um, to Satan that kind of leads us to scratch our heads or go, what is that? There's a number of things going on here. I don't have time to kind of unpack all of them or tell you kind of what all the, the options could be. I'll just tell you part of what I think this is. But what I think this is isn't saying, is saying that you need to just, this person is leaving the safety of the church. It's leaving the blessings of being a part of the covenant community of God, of being a part of his church family, and you send them out into the world. So they don't want to be here anymore. They don't, want to be, they don't want to be under the teachings of Jesus or the apostles. So send them out to Satan into the world, and let's hope he comes back. Let him see how the world is going to treat this. Let him see where that sin is going to lead, which we know all sin leads to death. And hopefully what we'll long and pray is that he'll come back um, and ask for salvation, that he may be saved in the day of the Lord. That's just my opinion. There's other things there. If you want to talk more about that um, part specifically, we can. But part of what this passage reminds us of, it should remind us of the gospel. Because part of the, the message of Jesus is that we really do have to repent of our sins. Okay, it's not enough to just believe and say, yep, Jesus died on the cross for my sins for me. That's easy. Jesus says even the demons believe that. Satan believes that. Satan affirms that. Satan was there for that. He knows for sure with deeper faith maybe even than we have that that event actually happened in history. That's not enough to save you. You have to actually care about Jesus. You have to acknowledge that that happened enough that it actually changes your life. That it leads you to want nothing to do anymore with the sins of the world and everything to do with Jesus. And, part, and the gospel demands that we repent. It demands that we fall on our faces and acknowledge, Jesus, I cannot save myself. I wish I could save myself. I've tried to do life my way, but I cannot. Would you please save me? I am a sinner. That's really even what repentance is, is acknowledging that. And this is why non-repentance is so serious, is because it's denying who you actually are. It's saying, no, I'm not really a sinner. It's not that big of a deal. I don't really care. I, I watched a, a random movie this week that had a, a, a phrase of kind of this caricature person who's proclaiming to be a Christian a little bit. And they said, hey, man, you know what's one of the best things about Jesus? You can just do whatever you want. It doesn't matter because he died on the cross. Man, he paid for our sins. Woohoo! No, that's not it at all. And that's why this is so serious. That's why this person has to be removed from the church because they don't understand what the gospel really means. They don't understand that the gospel means we have to repent we don't do whatever we want. We do what Jesus wants. Not because we have to, but just because we love him so deeply. And as believers, we should be marked as those who continually repent of our sins. All of us. If you know Jesus, 
If you're a Christian, no matter how long you've been a Christian or been walking with Jesus, whether it's been five minutes or five decades or more or less, our entire lives should be marked by people who are continually repenting of our sins, who are continually falling on our faces and asking Jesus for forgiveness, who are continually learning more and more about how far away we are from God and how incredible and amazing His grace is. And if we're not doing that, if we're not repenting, if we're not continually asking Him for forgiveness of our sins, that says something about what we think about Jesus, that we don't value Him that much at all. So that's a little bit about church discipline. Um, We talked about the definition that this is really just the process of um, correcting sin in the life of the church in the most extreme case. It doesn't involve just confronting someone. You can go to Matthew 18. It's another passage that relates to this um, that talks about a less extreme example of what do you do. But the most extreme, you have to kick them out. And why would we do this? Well, we practice church discipline under the authority of Jesus to protect the church. Not to protect our reputation because we care about it, but to protect the people inside of the church because we care about them. How do we do this? We need to approach church discipline with mourning and not pride. Whenever we think about this, it should make us weep and it should make us sad. It should not make us think about how awesome we are and how terrible someone else is. And who do we do this to? We, we need to be sure that we are disciplining the people inside of the church, not outside. When do we do this? We have to do this when there's serious, unrepentant public sin. At least those are the best markers, I, I think, to have on that. And the goal of all of this is, man, we practice church discipline hoping for repentance. We do it because we are people who are repenting, and we hope that others would come and continue to repent. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus, is we are people who repent over and over and over of our sins. Because we know how much we desperately need Him. So I'm going to, I'm going to close this in prayer, and we're going to transition um, into a time of communion. So I'm going to invite Jeff to come up and just kind of play a little bit as we get into that. Would you bow your heads with me? Lord, I I thank you. Lord, I thank you for your word. I I thank you that your word isn't something that we would have made up. It's not something that we read just because we we love everything or because you're a God we created because there are things in here like this passage that we wouldn't choose. Lord, I ask that you would... Help us to be a people who repent. Lord, would you help us to not be like the church in Corinth, but to take the sin in our midst seriously. Not because we are jerks, not because we are power hungry, but because we love the people in our midst and because we want and we long for them to be more like you. Lord, would you help us to to learn and to know how to do this in a way that is just consistent with your word, in a way that honors you. But above all, Lord, would you help us be a people who repent? Would we be be known in our community and our places that that we live and operate as people who know that they need Jesus? We pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. So glad that He sought us when we were strangers and brought us in to be His children. Hear this blessing from your Father. 
from Numbers chapter 6. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. God bless you, church family. Walk with Jesus this week. You're dismissed.